Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Osiris. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Touchdowns All Day podcast. I am your host, John Barber, and as always with co-host Mr. Max Dawson, we will be bringing you some of the most incredible biscuit interviews slash stories you've ever heard in this episode. I have been very busy. I haven't been able to be on these interviews because I just did a California tour. We sold out Tahoe. We did the longest bass note of all time in San Francisco. We went to Santa Cruz and played in old-style jazz show. Then I did Baba G in L.A. It was kind of a rager. Then we played the L.A. party show, and that was the real rager, and then the backstage rager, because L.A. just throws down. I mean, it just does. There's no question. I started a fast on that Thursday, too. I don't know how many of you have ever fasted before, but let me tell you, it works really well. It really fixes your your internals of your body if you need that. And it's good. It's very good. Uh, we went to San Diego after that. And the Biscuits invented a new kind of dirty hard techno jam. I don't know what we're going to call it yet. I think we need you fans to chime in on it. Listen to the second set of San Diego. And let us know what you think that jam style should be called. It's kind of like a Dino Baby jam from Santa Cruz, but done more stretched out and without Dino Baby. I feel like Dino Baby is the song that's creating this new style of jam. It's a very, very hard techno that the Biscuits are now doing like it's our job. And after we did that, we went to Gem and Jam. It was really weird and cool. The gems were gigantic. I mean, I gotta say, I don't know how these people get these gems home. Yeah, we saw Andy Frascow, we saw Maddie O'Neill, we saw Michael Minaert, we saw LPGOB, we saw Of The Trees, we saw a bunch of people at the Gem and Jam Music Festival, everybody doing their thing, having a great time. Well, me and Frascow are like so chummy now since the podcast that we dropped last week together was the number one podcast ever in the history of podcasts. At least that's what they told me. I don't think they tell me the truth, honestly, but it did really well. Uh, thank you guys all for listening. I think everybody was pleasantly surprised at what happened there. I mean, honestly, with those kind of ratings, I should get a TV show. There should be some kind of TV show that I can go on. If the ratings are going to be that high, they probably want me on Dancing on the Stars or, you know, what's that other one that Howard Stern used to be on? America's Got Talent. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm good enough for that show, but I could be on the one where you like stand inside of a giant mascot and. They, like, pretend to ask you questions. It's literally the dumbest TV show, The Masked Singer. Yeah, I could be on that one. That would be great. It would be great. No one would be on that show has ever heard of The Biscuits, so they would never get me. So it, it wouldn't be great for the show necessarily. But you guys would tune in, and you would know it's me, I'm sure. I'm sure you guys would just immediately know. 
Because you guys can tell, you can tell, but you can, you know, you know my scent, you know my smell, you know what I mean? I don't know. Anyways, I've been doing a lot of podcasting, a lot of podcasting this month. I think this is like my fifth or sixth podcast of the month. We have more coming for next month. It's a lot of just trying to mine my life for stuff to talk about, which I think is pretty easy to do, frankly. And it's a very easy job. I mean, the guys who have this talk all day job in the same studio where you don't have to tour and you just go to the studio every day and and you just talk at the camera. God, that 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 job's got to be so easy. It's intense. I and mean, the only easier job than that is football commentator. No, there is no easier job than football commentator. Tony Romo like becomes a football commentator and everybody's like, "Oh my god, he's so good at the easiest job in the world." He's he's so great at a job that is so easy. Why is it easy? I, mean, I don't understand. I mean, don't you have to know a lot about football? No, you don't really need to know anything about football. Don't you need to know who all the players are and what teams they're on? And uh, it's like a piece of paper in front of you with all the with all the names on it. And you just look at the paper because you're not on camera. So you could literally be reading a script. You could have somebody who knows about football sitting next to you, handing you a thing saying, oh, that's the eye formation with a wishbone twist or whatever. Right. Let me tell you, that's the easiest job in the game. I don't think they'll ever give me that job, but uh, they'll never give that job to a non-football player. And they shouldn't. They shouldn't because we would remove the veneer that you need to really deeply understand football to do that job. So. I uh, just finished a three-day fast, which I did while I was on tour, which is a first. And I think that's going to be a good future for me on tour is this whole fasting concept. It makes me feel like very relaxed on tour because tour is very hectic. You got to go here, pack, unpack, pack up, go into this room, remember where your hotel is, figure out how to work out. And then there's the other twist of figure out how to eat. Now, we have people who help us figure out how to eat. And let me tell you, it's still hard. You're at a new restaurant you've never heard of. You're looking at a countertop filled with assorted dried and freeze-dried snacks and carbonated beverages you've never heard of. It's different everywhere you go. Backstage at High Sierra is like the king arena of hippie snacks. And trust me, some of them are delicious, but you really have to look through all of them just to read the labels and stuff, just because they're, you know how hippie snacks always use that wacky font that you can never read? Well, it's, it's 50,000 packages like that. So it takes a minute to get through all the snacks. And then when you go to, you know, San Diego, it's different. San Diego is, frankly, the most beautiful assortment of of grill-cooked sandwiches I've ever seen in my entire life backstage, all in their own individual plastic clear case. But I was fasting because when I fast on tour, I don't have to decide to eat any food. It's not so much about the health. It's more about I just don't want to choose food another time today. Have you ever wondered this? Have you ever had this thought in your mind why do we eat three times a day? 
Is that really necessary for the human race? But why did we evolve this way? I mean, there's animals. The sharks only eat every couple of days. Camels will drink every once in a while. I'm sure if somebody out there could pull up ChatGPT and ask ChatGPT how many animals eat less than once every two or three days, frequency-wise, I think you'd find a lot of animals. Locusts only come out once every 27 years or something like that. And so we have this situation where humans eat three, three, really, times a day. Is that really necessary? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of plates. It's a lot of dishwashers. It's a lot of what am I going to have? Mental overhead. It's effort, folks. And when I'm fasting on tour, I feel light. I feel ready to go, awake, very aware. Yes, the mangoes at Jam and Jam were perfect and I could not have one, but they were perfect. And frankly, if you're fasting and you have a mango that you literally cut and peel yourself, no juice, no dried, just cut, peel, eat the actual mango, you could probably eat that on a fast. I think you'd probably stay in your fast. So I almost did that, but I skipped it because we had a show to play. If the mangoes were great every night, it wouldn't be so decisions, but... They're not. It's different every night. Everywhere we go, the food is totally different. So I removed that decision for this past weekend and just focused on playing some good guitar and playing some good shows and jamming well with the band. And I think it worked. I think it worked. People were saying all these crazy things about this weekend of shows, uh, all timer, best show in 100 years, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I love that kind of bubble of positivity, optimism around our band, because that is what it takes, folks. That is the world that we are trying to create by playing our music. So I want to thank the crowd for taking a lot of time to let us know that what we're doing is working. We had a crowd at Gem and Jam in Tucson, Arizona, that was, it literally seemed like all new people. Honestly, I looked out, I didn't really recognize anybody, but they were all singing along and stuff, so they know who we are. So I I think the Biscuits are at a, a point now where when we play these festivals and other things, the people who are there to see us are actually there to see us. Instead of fans of whatever, or just going with the scene or whatever. People are actually there to see us, which is crazy because that means we can do whatever we want because people are just there to see us. So we might as well just be us to the nth degree. And that's what the San Francisco show was this past week. That was the me on stage having this thought because there was so much going on in San Francisco that night. There was a Burning Man. There was a Dirty Bird. There was there was like other other bands playing in town. I was thinking to myself, all these people could have gone to any of those other places and they're here. So they were here. They're here to see us. So we had this really hardcore show because of that energy, that strong, big bubble of positivity energy, the BBP energy, I guess, the big bubble of positivity energy, big BBP, something like that. So we got a Tractor Beam show coming up, folks. I got another Baba G show with DJ Brownie. The Baba G and DJ Brownie show went fantastic. People had a great time in Venice, and we're going to do something again in Avon. And, you know, thank you guys for all the the love and support. Feels great. 
Enjoy the Super Bowl. Enjoy the podcast. We're mass communicating. here reporting from inside the bubble of positivity Uh, as you can probably detect from my voice uh, i've got woke flu so i'm going to try to keep it short in these upfront announcements guys you already know that the disco biscuits have been tearing it up down the west coast and into colorado one of the most impressive tours in this band's career as good as 2023 was we were not prepared for this this is a whole new evolution of the Disco Biscuits. Lots of cool stuff coming up this episode. As Barbara alluded, we've got an interview with Steve Martocci, the composer of Monster, the song that gave us the crazy jam that rounded out the end of the San Diego show. We've got a segment with Aaron Magner discussing his incorporation of samples into Biscuits Jams. And uh, since I prepared this interview with Aaron, there have been so many more moments to discuss, including tonight, where he dropped Jerry Garcia acapellas from Cold Rain and Snow during Astronaut. By this point, you know the drill. Head over to DiscoBiscuits.com. Ben's got a new website. Go to the shows page, DiscoBiscuits.com slash shows. There you'll find all the latest tour dates, including links to buy tickets. Shows are selling out left and right. At first, it was just Boulder, then the special Revolution in Motion record release party on March 29th. The Webster Hall in New York City was announced. That quickly sold out. San Diego sold out at the door. Tahoe Night 2 sold out at the door. Don't get shut out. Head over to the band's website purchase your tickets and while you're there click on the follow the disco biscuits link at the bottom of the page that will allow you to sign up for the band's mailing list give you first crack at future on sales make sure you are not left out in the cold revolution in motion the disco biscuits third rock opera will be released on cd vinyl and all streaming services march 29th Head over to shop.discobiscuits.com to pre-order your copy, including a special limited edition double vinyl release, gatefold LP on electric teal and black galaxy glitter, 180 gram vinyl. We've also got links up where you can pre-save the album on Spotify or Apple Music. It's a great way to support the band. Let the streaming services know that you're ready for the album. Part two of our Revolution in Motion podcast series coming soon. Be joined by John and Joey once again for an in-depth, expansive interview covering the next four songs in the rock opera. Cats out of the bag now. I can tell you that we'll be talking about Times Square, Freeze, Tourists, and Spaga's Last Stand. Lots of inside behind-the-scenes info. We'll be playing you some demos. 
you get to hear John and Joey talk about the creative process and the mythology around Revolution in Motion. One last thing, we want to hear from you. Call us on the Touchdowns All Day hotline, 424-666-SIYD. That's 424-666-7493. Leave a voicemail. It's your opportunity to sound off, to let us know what you think of the podcast, to let us know what you think of the tour, to ask Barbara a question, or just to get something off your chest. Maybe you want to confess something. I'm loving the voicemails we're getting so far. And once Barbara is back off the road and he and I have a chance to sit down, we're going to play them, listen to them, and respond to them. So keep those calls coming. 424-666-SIYD. With that all out of the way, let's get to it. The first week of the Why We Dance Tour delivered many highlights that I anticipate we'll be talking about a great deal when it comes time to conduct the 2024 Jam of the Year poll. For me, the most memorable moment of the five shows I saw on the West Coast Tour was undoubtedly the last portion of the second set of the San Diego show. I'm talking about the jam from Monster back into 42. Monster's a bit of an enigma. It's only been played a handful of times since it was first debuted, and it's brief, more a sketch or a theme as opposed to a full-blown composition. And in many ways, I think of it similar to the Mind Lift Body Jam and the function that that played within the context of Grateful Dead jams from the single drummer pre-hiatus era. So for example, during some of those great moments in 1973 and 1974, the dead would coalesce on themes, the Mind Lift Body Jam in particular, that would allow them to regroup and center before spinning off into the stratosphere again. Monster and its sister song Vibes have played a similar function for the Biscuits, especially during their last performance in San Diego. I wanted to learn more about these songs, and so I went to the source, the man who composed them, your friend and mine, Steve Martocci. Steve, welcome to Touchdowns All Day. Oh, thanks for having me, Max. Steve, this last show, we saw massive performances of two songs that you are the composer of. And I know that people have been curious about the origins of these songs. They've been played uh, sparsely over the last 18 months to two years since their debut. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about these compositions, where they came from, and how they became a part of the Biscuits' repertoire. Totally. I mean, you know, it's such a joy whenever I hear them played, especially when they're as big as they were uh, on Sunday night. Uh, is that Sunday night? No, it's Friday night. Friday night. <laughs> Time has become elastic. My dates are all messed up. This is like a bonus day for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, 
So those songs were basically voice notes that I had recorded during COVID. And uh, I was kind of learning guitar. And like I'd always had a guitar, but I never like kind of took it seriously. And we had time in our hands during COVID. And I was, you know, doing like little chord experiments and things like that and writing riffs and writing, uh, you know, things. And I would send them off to John. So for that was for Monster. That was like kind of like a voice note that I had done. I was living up in Rhinebeck. And Vibes was a, a crazy story. Like I, I never, uh, I'm more of a programmer than I am a musician. And <laughs> I, I understand the concept of dreaming in code and like coming up with a solution in code and waking up and, and solving it. But this was the first time I had ever dreamt a song and dreamt a melody and jumped up out of bed, ran over to the guitar and recorded it. And it was, it was just like a very surreal experience. Um, and so the voice note was called B Walk Up. And it was in like the, because it was in the key of B and it was kind of this ascending, you know, melody. It's a like B Mixolydian thing. The story from there is that, you know, for my 40th birthday, uh, you know, I had the Biscuits play. Uh, it was a big kind of big celebration. And I had like meticulously written the set list and designed it for the fact that like the majority of people there were not going to be uh, Biscuits fans. Um, there were people from all over my life. And they surprised me. I remember at one point with, with Vibes in particular, uh, you know, my girlfriend was at the uh, dance floor go, and she just goes, I love this song. And I was like, wait, what song? Oh, it's my song.
So you had no warning. You were not in any way in the loop as to the fact that the band had taken these voice memos that you had recorded, in some cases, half asleep and yeah. translated them into Biscuits Jams. Yeah, which was super cool. And, you know, that and then the, you know, the Friend Like Steve song that you, you covered in the Joey kind of origin episode uh, those were just the surprises that they did on uh, on my birthday that made me feel so great. And seeing those songs out in the wild now are just just so fun. And they get you know the thing about them is they just get stuck in your head. Yes, uh, you know, and that's and like for me still like I can get I can get either of those ones stuck in my head for days. I think everyone who was in San Diego woke up the next day humming the melody to Monster, or at least maybe <laughs> I'm just talking about myself. It's been hard to shake it ever since. And of course, it also stands out as one of the highest highlights of uh, the first 10 days of the Why We Dance tour. Steve, you mentioned that your background is in computer programming. Some people may know that you are the founder of a number of computer and or software startups, most notably for our purposes, a company called Splice, which has become, um, you know, I, apologies if I don't do it justice, one of the world's, if not the world's foremost beat marketplace for samples and different sorts of musical elements that producers yeah. in most genres are using today. I've talked to John in the past about what it's like being a musician who finds his way into computer coding and what sort of similarities and differences there are between these two languages of expression. As someone who came to music and composition from the world of programming and coding, how are the two similar and different? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that that's, this is like a core you know, thing about John and I's relationship is like both being so interested in, in music and tech and uh and uh, for me, the the biggest difference, unfortunately, is like the uh, physicality and coordination required to play guitar. Uh, I don't need to be coordinated at all to write code. Um, so there's like, for me, you know, it's kind of this this interesting thing where, you know, I can write these things and play these things, but I would never want to be the one playing it live because I like, you know, I'm not... The, the, the dexterity, the mental, the physical control, like the fact that I'm a lefty playing a guitar. I don't know. Like, I just like, it, I struggle with it, but like there, but compositionally, I feel like I can, you know, hear these great melodies and stuff and kind of pull them out. Um, and code, you know, I think John's an interesting one to ask about this because the thought process of kind of like the navigating through problems and solving them and finding new sections and, Oh, if we have that, where can we go with this? And like, for me, I get so engaged there and I, um, I get so inspired by it. So like I generally take the role of creating software to help musicians, uh, instead of trying to be the musician. Um, and you know, like we made group me to go to, uh, a Disco Biscuits concert with our friends to stay in touch. Uh, Splice came out of a, a mutual kind of idea of John and I and him kind of being a spark plug for for me, getting me over the line. And like, yeah, so for me, my role is really to build software to help, you know, the, the music experience, whether it's creation or, you know, going to the show or all that kind of stuff. And uh, And for me, it's a little more, it's much more difficult to cross over into the, the, the actual creation of the music side. 
Um, so I like my role. I like my spot. I like to be a, a little bit of a crew guy, if you will, like in the, in the mix of things and, uh, and just try to create great experiences. Are there any composers or instrumentalists who you drew on for inspiration for Vibes and Monster? Uh, I mean, look, for Vibes, it was a dream, right? I think for um, for uh, Monster, it was about how do I create a monstrous biscuits-level peak, and that's what I wanted to do. Like there was a little bit of a dream inside me to be like, could I make something worthy of the stage? Um, and that was the drive, you know, just kind of fun, just a little experiment. That was kind of like the, the music theory experiment I was going through. And, you know, I had sent these guys lots of voice notes of different tracks and these are the two that they picked to, to kind of, that said they were stage worthy. And, and, and honestly, I, we have a backlog of a bunch of them that, you know, if these guys ever hit writer's block, which I don't know if it's ever going to happen again, considering this new music creation process and how great they're doing at writing the best material, you know, they have in forever. Uh, you know, there's, we got a little backlog of stuff that we could work on and, and flesh these out more. But right now I think they just serve as fun, fun, you know, quick melodic riffs that go through and, and then, you know, set the stage for new jam vehicles. I think what's fun about them playing songs that are not necessarily theirs uh, musically like that, I mean, obviously they're, they're making them their own, is uh, it just it puts them in a new space for trying new transitions and going new places. And like, look, that I, I, I am so happy that that, that 27 minutes of, uh, of Monster from San Diego is, is, is tracked Monster, but it's the jam afterwards that all the magic came from. I mean, literally, I really listened to it this morning. I mean, like that is huge. It is one of the coolest things ever. And, uh, and the fact of the matter is like these guys right now are tinkering and adding new things every day, like at this level of, of experimentation, collaboration, trust. It's just this bubble of positivity <laughs> is real. Like, you know, Magner didn't have that vocal effect thing in there until that, that, that day, you know, right, right before sound check and look what that led to for the nug huffer. Like, wow. Um, so it's a, it's a great time to be a fan. It's a great time to be a friend. Um, and, uh, you know, super happy to see these songs uh, hit the stage. I couldn't agree more, Steve. Thank you so much. And Hey, I want you to promise me you're going to come back at a later date talk more about the history of your partnership with Barbara and the band on bringing to life some of your and their more outlandish and complicated ideas around music and technology. Can we, can we get you on the books? We'll do the full story soon. I for sure. I'm looking forward to that. Go enjoy this tour, man. If you, if you're listening to this and on the fence, go to see a show because it is the people were talking about golden era we're in the platinum era of the Disco Biscuits right now. Steve, thanks for joining us on Touchdowns All Day. All right, see ya. I want to give you guys a little bit of a taste of the sort of improvisation that a sketch like Monster has inspired. But to tell you the truth, you're going to have to listen to the entire thing. Head over to nugs.net 
and check out the Disco Biscuits live at the North Park Observatory in San Diego, California, February 2nd, 2024. And that entire 20 plus minute segment of improvisation that emerges from Monster. so much going on in this jam that we can talk about, but I want to focus on one thing in particular, and that's Aaron Magner's use of samples, and specifically samples from Coincidence, the 2017 comedy dance novelty song by Handsome Dancer. Magner's been going hard on the samples lately. December 2023 saw a number of new samples introduced, and that's continued through the first month of winter tour. This got me curious about how Aaron picks his samples, how he incorporates them into the band's jams, the technology he's using. And so I figured if I'm thinking about this, maybe you guys are too. So I invited Aaron to come back on the podcast and talk about it with us. Aaron, welcome back to Touchdowns All Day. Hey, thanks, Max. It's good to be back. So Aaron, samples have been a part of your palette for quite some time. And I think samples, I think Caves of the East. It's the most obvious example. You know, you got Ludacris with Get Back, Beastie Boys, Root Down. There's been Tribe Called Quest samples, Tupac... The list goes on. Uh, There's the spoken word samples, Alan Watts. There was the drinking out of cups sample with the seahorses. Ah, the drinking out of cups. about when you first started using samples um listen decades are a blur at this point but i think sometime around 2007 can uh can can you are, are you able to confirm can you fact check that for i me? can check with the biscuits internet project they are the authorities okay um yeah i mean i just kind of started using it because we were integrating uh computers and technology a little bit more into our setup in uh, that first decade of the millennium um and we always kind of danced around having the computer just be uh, an another instrument tool as opposed to a playback tool or something you know that that um, bigger staged productions, arena shows and stuff like that. You know, there's people under stage or side stage that are doing a lot of playback stuff. And we didn't want to be completely dependent on computer. So we started, I started using it kind of um, 
as another tool, as a, a sampler, basically. Um, and yeah, the internet was, you know, becoming more and more prevalent as it does with every passing year, but certainly in the, you know, the first 10 years of that millennium. And so there was all sorts of fun things that were just happening. You know, the, the drinking out of cups thing was fun. So I sampled that there was the Charlie and just, you know, there was little, little fun internet before memes even were a yeah. thing. It was just, you know, things that were on the internet that were fun. Um, and so I started sampling some of those and it seemed like, uh, the families was having a good time with it and I was having a good time with it and then stopped using it for, for a good decade i feel you know and i don't think it was until recently yes there was the caves of the east that was the only one that would have you know samples in it and tried to do different samples with uh, each incarnation of caves but that was kind of it for a while was caves specifically composed with the idea of using hip-hop samples or other samples or is it something that came to you while playing it on stage I remember the the origination of it, but um, you know it's a tempo that hip hop tempo the disco biscuits don't typically play in, um, and hip hop acapellas work really well uh, over that tempo. And they also don't have because they're you know hip hop they don't have a lot of uh, um, harmonic content to it, so it was just one less variable to try and figure out how to fit into the mix. Um, and that's why it just like works really well over that kind of like empty section of caves. Um, also at the time, I feel like I was just given like a, a folder of a whole bunch of like hip hop samples, you know, like everybody was kind of using it in like new electronic, uh, production. Um, and so I somehow got like a folder of it and that's when I started playing around with it. So when I think of the use of samples, I immediately go to the old Tip World, Psytrance, Spongle stuff. It creates this really trippy psychedelic effect. The Yeti loves to drink schnapps too, so he's like a real shaman. And he, uh, uh, if you want to contact him, you have to put some alcoholic offerings uh, in front of the forest. The Alan Watts sample is an immediate frame of reference for this for me. Talk to me a little bit about the spoken word samples and specifically the Alan Watts one, which I definitely know is a fan favorite. When I brought up this uh, interview subject to a few people, they said, oh, ask him about the Alan Watts sample. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like Alan Watts, just, you know, a British philosopher with, you know, an incredibly, uh, articulate ways of expressing his thoughts. And there's, you know, countless lectures and stuff like that, that you could find. And that's where I borrowed some of these. When I was a small boy, I used to haunt that section of London around the British Museum. And one day I came across a shop which had a notice over the window, which said philosophical instruments. Even as a boy, I knew something about philosophy, but I couldn't imagine what philosophical instruments could be. So I went up to the window, and there displayed were chronometers, slide rules, scales, and all kinds of what we would now call scientific instruments. I feel like Simon Posford uh, would sample Alan Watts too, which is probably what gave me the idea. But there's so many different lectures that you can take. And it's also kind of like, you know, you sit there trying to find like a good little bite that you can put in. But really, the whole thing is just 
consistently good sound bites. So, you know, as I'm searching for the sample, um, you know, I'm just like listening to an incredibly, uh, you know, intelligent lecture. Unlike when I was looking for the samples when Sammy and I wrote uh, uh, Onamiwa, right? Now, if you remember, can I, I don't know whether I'll be able to bring that up uh, quickly enough, but the uh, original Moshi Moshi version of Onamiwa had um, like orgasm samples at the beginning of it. <laughs> What was the source of those? So, I mean, I feel like we did we did Onamiwa in like, you know, the early 2000s. I, I feel like it was before like even like internet porn was easily accessible. So yeah. they, they were actually uh, uh, DVDs found uh, in Sammy's house. Uh-huh. And I remember like I, all I wanted was like the orgasm sound. But like I knew that that's specifically what I wanted. And it was so <laughs> weird. Like, you know, like somebody else's DVDs. I don't know. Was it the brother? The dad? I don't know whose DVDs they were. But you're saying but Sammy had, just found them. He they weren't his. They just were left at his house I, in his DVD player. It must be the previous owner that my parents bought mm, the house from. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I mean, it was so. I was like, oh my god, I've been watching this for like. The, I, I have what I need. Here we go. But um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll send you that file if you could splice it in because there is a definitively, and you know, once you process it, right? Like all of a sudden, you're not, you know, watching porn and making electronic music. Once you process it, it just becomes, <laughs> you know, another another instrument, right? Um, I also feel like the use of samples, just in general, it just gives like a really organic vibe especially when juxtaposed to electronic music right yes and i always gravitate to electronic music um that has it's usually it's like just one organic element sometimes it's a vocal right um you know amidst all this other amazing synthesized stuff right but that like one majestic you know, female vocal really makes it it, it gives the illusion that um the that the music was created by you know musicians and humans and it's not just all made by machine right it reinforces yeah. the fact that like hey like you know we brought in the organic world into this you know digital environment and we're fusing the two of them together um and so i i love that when electronic music brings like a real piano in you know or you know, again, just people talking, it just kind of diffuses how um, synthesized, you know, electronic music can be. Um, and it brings it back to the the human element of it. Do you select the samples you play yourself or is it a collaborative effort with other members of the band? Uh, no, I just kind of select them and, you know, I'll, I'll trigger them 
typically at will. Sometimes, um, like in the case of New Year's, I was like, hey, if we ever find ourselves in like a, you know, a halftime type thing, I, I have this, you know, bomb bomb sample. And, you know, it was uh, listening to it the other day, listened to it a bunch of times. I was like, oh, I used to love this song and I haven't heard it in forever. Um, and then was like, this would actually make a good sample. Didn't know where. Um, and then when we were like on stage sound checking uh, Jigsaw is when I was like, oh, this has like, you know, a nice little like halftime reggae thing. This would be the space. And so I told the band, I was like, hey, if there's a time that I want to drop the sample, it, it would be in something like this, um, you know, whereas something like Alan Watts giving a lecture is a lot more malleable with where you can put it. Yeah, I was going to ask that as a follow up. Does the sample placement need to be premeditated or can it be incorporated spontaneously within the context of a free flowing jam? And it sounds like it can be either, but it depends on the nature of the sample. It depends on the nature of the sample. Right. So, you know, rhythmic aspects, um, you know, harmonic, the, 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 the harmonic aspects of it is kind of the, the most difficult part, right? You need, need to make sure that the key that you're extracting from either matches the key of the song that you're in, or you need to know in advance what key you're transposing it to. And sometimes I, I do that on the fly, you know, so I'll, I'll make a note, um, you know, okay, this one is in C and then I'll be like, Oh, I really want to drop that sample, but it's in D. So I'll just be able to pitch it up real quickly on the fly. So let's talk about some of the samples that you debuted in December, 2023. You mentioned bomb bomb, but let's, let's go back to the beginning of the month and start with conga in Miami. In some ways, a totally obvious choice. We all know you have a soft spot for eighties dance pop. You're in Miami <laughs> proper for the first time in a long time. But at the same time, it was a really unexpected and delightful surprise when it popped up in the middle of the jam. So that was an example of us uh, getting together for a Zoom conversation a week before, two weeks before the show in Miami and kind of talking about like what fun, different, special um, things that we can do. Songs, just so we know, you know, how to prepare both collectively and individually. Um, at that point, you know, we'd taken like six weeks off from the road. So, you know, getting back in, we needed to make sure that we were like on point. So we had like a conversation about what we wanted to accomplish. And the conga thing actually came out of that conversation. So that definitely is an example of, you know, where we were just brainstorming and being open to ideas. Um, and then, you know, of course it's me. I'm like, Oh my God, Conga, this would be great. And then the idea, um, 
uh, the idea then became, let's try and do uh, Conga into Little Shimmy <laughs> back into yeah. Conga, you know, right. And kind of like, and was that, that, that kind of part of the plan? I know that that set got a little truncated. You ran out of time on a few things on that show. Was there a plan of trying to, cause you did it in I-Man if I remember correctly. Right, right. I, I, I think I was trying to do it in Little Shimmy No Conga Line just because it would look so good on paper to be able to make yeah. that sandwich. And I think I was like having trouble kind of like fitting it in and making it work for whatever the variables were. And then I think it was Brownstein that was like, hey, it'll probably work really well in I-Man. I was like, oh, it'll work great in I-Man. So that's that's how we kept it. Yeah. Um. So that one was probably one of the few that's like premeditated. And I feel like the more premeditated that you get, the more, well, cheesy it can get. And, you know, mm-hmm. this happens to be an example of like cheesy was, was good. Um, but, you know, for the most part, the spontaneity is what has always been so special about the Disco Biscuits and, you know, what we do on stage in an improv setting. So if you can kind of facilitate the samples to be along the same vein, uh, I, I'd like it to stay like that. In terms of when you trigger these, I know you mentioned before that you have to be um, mindful of the harmonic considerations. Is this something that requires the use of the side chain uh, in order to properly sync up with what everybody else is doing? Or is it something that can happen at any time? No, no, no. The the the, the side chain would be a completely separate, um, you know, topic. Um, but similarly, the thing that is um, common be- with what needs to happen in order for to make the computer become an active participant with the musicians is for us to all be on the same tempo. And, you know, that means playing to a click, right? And if everybody's playing on the click, you know, okay, we know that we want to play this song typically around 135 BPM, right? And so rather than having, you know, most bands that don't use a click, the drummer kind of like gets there and he's like, okay, the drummer knows I'm at 135. You know, sometimes there's like a, a clock where the drummer can be like, you know, yep, I could see from my kick drum that I'm playing exactly at 135, 136, 134, average of 135. Um, When the computer comes in, it needs to know, hey, and the computer declares, I'm at 135. So everybody else better be playing at 135 with me. Um, You know, and there's, so there's obviously all these advantages of, you know, then coming to the computer, but there's disadvantages of coming to the computer because the computer does not have the ability to be reactive. Um, You know, so, you know, if somebody, you know, skips a beat or something like that, the computer doesn't know. It's just constantly doing its thing. And then you are just like kind of like a slave to the computer when you want any sort of, you know, instrument to be um, a participant. Now, after the conga sample, we fast forward to the New Year's run and the appearance of Bomb Bomb, as you mentioned, during Jigsaw. People loved that. I mean, Bomb Bomb is probably one of the most sampled songs of all time. It is an absolute classic. Is that true? I thought I found like a, 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 like a unique one. I was like, I just hadn't heard the song in so much. When I was prepping for this, I found it is one of the most sampled uh-huh. dancehall reggae songs. And cool. and not to say that it didn't maintain its freshness. It was so perfect within the context of Jigsaw. Uh, you placed it perfectly. But uh, I was going to ask before you, you mentioned how during Soundcheck this came up, it felt like the entire band sort of teed it up. Like everybody sort of 
came into uh, uh, into synchronicity with one another and allowed you to begin dropping them. Um, was there that kind of premeditation and communication at the moment, or was it just like you felt like, okay, we're in that halftime reggae, now's the time? Well, so this is an example of like why it's good to premeditate something. So again, um, you know, the concept came from the the sound check thing of like, oh, this would be a good time to drop it. And, um, you know, so we did talk about that specifically like within the drum solo section. And there was like a moment where, you know, Alan soloing and I was like, okay, is he, is he going to click in? Like, can I, can I drop it? And then kind of had to like look over and be like, you know, prompt him to to do it. I was like, I think to that point I was like sold. I was like, I really want to do it. We had it queued up. Come on, let's go. So if, if you yeah. felt, you know, everything kind of and everybody kind of like humming to, uh, if you will, on the same page, it was because we all suddenly got warped to tempo red and we were all ready for it. So there was no kind of like, well, who's that woman singing in my ear? Is that sister Nancy? <laughs> <laughs> But then later you came back to it during the jam at a freeze, which was totally different because we were not in a, a reggae jam. We were not in something that seemed tailor made for it, but you made it work again. Tell me how you pulled it. What? Off I did bomb bomb in the and middle freeze? freeze. No, I, I think didn't. So? No, no, I don't think so. Uh, according to the set list, let me see. I wouldn't have done it twice. Yeah, you did. <laughs> the sample queued up can you share it with us of bomb bomb yeah i would love to um so here we go let's just let's just put a, a beat on first just okay. something in, in at you know tempo here's not a reggae beat here's like a just a hip-hop beat then the cool thing is then I could bring effects in. So here's like a big delay. You know, not my best mix job there, but you know, I can get in and out of it basically by, um, you know, throwing a huge delay on, putting a reverb on, you know, there's tons of other effects, a, a filter or something like that, and really, um, you know, begin to manipulate the sample into something unique. Amazing. Well, you already 
foreshadowed what we're going to talk about next, and that's Macarena. Now, Ooh, there's fun. a story behind this one. Do you want to tell it? <laughs> no, yeah, I would like it for you to tell it. Where do I begin? While we were in Tulum for Barbara's and Lisa's wedding, we were constantly being told for the days leading up to the ceremony itself by our, our good friend Presley that we were going to do the Macarena during the reception. And she went around and made sure everyone was fully up on all the moves. She rehearsed us. She had this grand vision of us all doing the Macarena at the reception and surprising John and Lisa. And sure enough, at the reception, the DJ dropped Macarena and the entire crowd at Presley's urging dropped into what was, I think, a pretty great performance. I, 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 if I do say so myself, I think we were good. There, there is video out there, but we all dropped into Macarena and John and Lisa were delighted. Presley was so happy. She pulled it off and everyone had fun. And Macarena is a moment that everyone has fun during. 100%. Now, you have to understand that this dates back for Presley trying to lobby for the Macarena dates back well before the wedding. Oh, I did not Pres know that component. Oh, Presley has been on the Macarena train even before, you know, she was trying, she was trying to get the Disco Biscuits to actually play it, you know, and I was like, I don't think we're going to do that, but, but, you know, maybe I'll do a sample. So yeah, she, she's been on that train for a long time. Totally unaware of that. Well, Presley, you got your Macarena. You got she us got her all Macarena. doing the Macarena in Tulum. You got the Macarena on New Year's Eve. It was so much fun. Once again, so unexpected. And, and, and I think that, you know, there is a theme here with some of these. Like you said, they kind of, they teeter on the edge of cheesy, but they're not. They're fun. They're crowd participation. They're something that everyone's going to recognize. And they're things that just kind of bring a smile to people's faces. I mean, there was a couple that that didn't get used, you know, so so mind you, we were trying to do, uh, you know, a, a, an electric themed set. Right. Yeah. Um, Macarena, not necessarily fitting into that electric theme, but that that one was for was for Presley. So what other ones did I have queued up? Let me bring. Um, oh, here. I mean, the obvious question is. Was electric slide under consideration? Uh, the electric slide was not uh, in consideration. I did listen to the electric slide, though. So no electric slide. Well, we'll forgive you of that. I mean, we don't want to turn it into a, a full wedding reception or bar mitzvah, 
but you know, a little, a little bit of bar mitzvah. <laughs> we allow for a little bit of bar mitzvah. Just a little bit of bar mitzvah hasn't hurt anybody. We still have to have John's bar mitzvah. <laughs> so save all of these. Hey, it might happen now. I know. Um, now, by the time this airs, you're going to be out in the road in the Why We Dance tour. Any sneak previews of any of the special new sounds or samples that you're cooking up in the lab for this tour? Um, nothing that I'm cooking up. I feel like it needs to come at like an organic moment, right? And sometimes I'll be like listening to a song at the gym or I'll be, you know, sitting in bed trying to fall asleep and these ideas will come to me and I'll just like write them down on my phone and eventually get to them. I feel like this is the type of work that I can do like on a plane or on the bus. You know, this is not the type of like day work that I want to spend, uh, spend doing. Some of it is tedious. Um, the process has definitely been made a little bit easier over the years. Um, and my process now is actually, you know, pretty, pretty streamlined to be able to extract what I'm looking for. Um, and so I feel like, um, oh, even like the, the Rocky thing, yeah. right at the beginning. So, you know, that was kind of, that was a sample, right. Started the show, but I was able to kind of like get that in, uh, you know, probably like an hour before the show. It's like, Hey guys, I have this cool idea. Check this out. Had my computer backstage and everybody was like, I kind of like that. That sounds pretty good. And I was like, great. And then was able to kind of like do the work, throw it up on stage, be like, okay, here's my computer back. This works. Let's How was that a sample? I was totally unaware of that um well i can show you so it's just basically this right that's just the mm -hmm. guitar that's being looped put a kick drum underneath it because it's more fun so this is kind of like what we came out to what's up everybody welcome to the electric factory right and then on another clip i have the main lick here we go able to cycle between that and just the guitar. How are you able to extract the individual instruments or stems from a studio recording from 40 years ago? I'm so glad you asked, Max. Um, I've actually been using AI as, uh, as my helper in this. So, you know, it used to be that if you wanted to grab a, like an acapella, right? Um, you can either like scour the internet and, you know, over the decades and decades, people that have had access to these, you know, master files of these classic songs, um, you know, have reaccessed them as, you know, re original remastered recordings and stuff like that would happen over the years. And the stems of these songs would, you know, leak onto the internet. So you could go on the internet and like hear the actual stems of the things that like comprise, you know, the most famous of like Beatles tracks or something like that. Or isolated guitar of John Entwistle or something, right? And it's fascinating because it's actually the isolated guitar. However, you know, the the 
engineer from the session took off with the hard drive and gave it to a friend to listen to when he uploaded it to the internet. I don't know how that stuff gets out there, but like, you know, it's the internet. It's amazing. And, and it's really fun to go down that rabbit hole. So that was one way to have access to the stuff. And the other way for separating like acapellas would be to kind of use a combination of EQ and phase shifting to take out the other elements and only leave the, you know, proper EQ and, and phasing of the vocals that you wanted. So you could kind of like hear a little bit of the bleed of, you know, the band behind the vocals or something like that. Um, yeah. Now I'm incorporating AI and the program that I use, it's called uh, uh, Moises, M-O-I-S-E-S. Um, and I basically can put in the song and I can tell it what I want extracted from it. And then I could do all sorts of fun things within the program from there. Uh, but mainly I'll just take the stems that I had AI extract. And so it will spit out like, here's the bass part. Here's the vocal part. Here's the drum part. Um, and when I first found this program, I put in something like really complex. I put in a Chick Corea electric band song into it, you know, which has like crazy, right? It's Chick Corea. It's like so many notes and complexities and things that like, you know, <laughs> most musicians couldn't even perceive, conceive, yet alone like a computer being able <laughs> to understand what's going on. And it did it perfectly. And I was like, oh, this is a wow. game changer, especially for, you know, students, right? You know, you can play along with your favorite musicians and, you know, hear exactly what they're doing because now they're isolated and slow them down. Or for that matter, if you want to play along with like, you know, the, the, the best rhythm section and all of the history of jazz, you know, you could put on like the Miles Davis quintet and, you know, take out whatever instrument that you play and play along with like, you know, the best band ever to exist. Right. So you can do all these things with the advent of, of the AI. For me, it makes it so I don't have to do this crazy internet searching thing. Um, and I can just take the song that I want, dump it into the AI, take out the, the specific um, thing that I need and then be able to manipulate it from there. And it's come in handy in lots of different ways. I mean, I used it even for like Billy and the Kids over uh, over the fall. You know, we did like a, an acapella version of addicts of my life and you know those harmonies are really complex they were influenced by crosby sills and nash at the time and you know it's a little bit harder to make everything out when there's the other instruments there but you know when you just have the acapella vocals you're able to kind of like figure out oh that's the harmony this is what's going on so you know this application of ai has been incredibly helpful that's so cool. I've heard about this. I've heard about how some of the recent remasters, remixes of classic Beatles albums were using AI in order to separate mono tracks back into their constituent elements. Oh, that's but right. I had no idea how powerful it could be. Well, right. I mean, this last Beatles song that, that came out uh, a couple of months ago, whatever it was called, I, I forget. I mean, it made a splash for, you know, a hot minute as I, I think that's the longest duration of time that things can make a splash these days. Um, you know, and it was whatever. It was an okay Beatles song. It was just like amazing that they were even able to do it or had the care to do it. I thought it was beautiful and lovely, you know, to bring John back in, into the fold. And yes, there's we can debate that, but that's a different podcast. Um, but yeah, that's absolutely what they did. They took the technology that... Um What's the what's the director that did the Beatles film, Peter Jackson, right? Peter Jackson, so yeah. Peter Jackson was using this specialized AI um, that he used basically for the movie in order to 
you know, be able to extract the music that you hear in the movie and separate it from, you know, the random dialogue from the microphones that were open in the room at the time. And that's how they made that documentary. Um, and then it was that epiphany that McCartney was like, hey, can we use that same technology to be able to bring in John Lennon's voice from this, um, you know, demo recording that he had? They had tried to do it in the past and, you know, unsuccessfully so because things were a little bit too loud and they weren't able to lower the piano that was in the background and isolate the vocals appropriately. But with this specific software that was developed, you know, in AI just for that uh, documentary, they were able to achieve that and that's how they wrote the song any chance we can hear a snippet of that addicts acapella no okay never mind (laughs) uh so here's an example i only needed the vocals so You know, so I'm able to kind of like pinpoint the wow. uh, the harmonies a little bit better. I mean, I used it. Uh, what else did I use it on recently? Like, I needed to figure out, you know, a horn line of a song, and kind of was te- was able to tell the AI to separate the horns of Spanish Moon, so I could learn that horn sample. Um, my favorite things, John Coltrane. You know, there's there was some McCoy Tyner chords that were genius um, that I really wanted to figure out exactly what it is that you know McCoy was playing not just approximate what I think my ears were telling me um and was able to use AI to you know hear every single note that McCoy Tyner played in that famous version of my favorite thing so that was just I mean you know magical right and you kind of you kind of feel like you're there in the room with him um so just really really cool stuff i mean the applications of ai who knows where it's going to go you know probably you know kill all humanity and all that stuff but in the meantime i'll get some good samples out of it at the very least we might have some good samples well aaron thank you so much for giving this uh unparalleled insight once again into your bag of tricks i love it and everyone has really enjoyed getting to learn more about your process the technology and uh, creativity that goes into the sounds that you bring to the stage. Thanks so much. Thanks, Max. It's really fun coming back on the show. Aaron and I actually recorded that segment before the band set out on the Why We Dance tour. Looking back now, he was giving us all the hints about the AI he's using to pull acapellas from songs like Cold Rain and Snow, and we're listening to right now, Teardrop by Massive Attack. guys we're gonna leave it there as i mentioned before coming up soon we've got chapter two of our revolution in motion miniseries john barber joey friedman and myself in the studio going deep on chapter two of revolution in motion the next four songs in the biscuits new space opera 
In addition, I'm working on a special episode, a look back at January 1999. It's part of a 25th anniversary series commemorating 1999, the year that broke the Disco Biscuits. We're going to go month by month. We're going to listen to some of the best jams. We're going to talk about some of the best shows. And we're going to share some crazy stories that I guarantee a lot of you haven't heard yet. As I mentioned before, we want to hear from you. Give us a call on the Touchdowns All Day hotline, 424-666-SIYD. You can also hit us up on social media at Touchdowns All Day, at Barber Shreds, at FY Maxwell. Touchdowns All Day is an Osiris Media production. You could check us out on the web at touchdownsallday.com. This episode was written and produced by me, Max Dawson, with help from Crunk Mike and Osiris Media, executive producer, Dr. Vic Sobti. Special thanks to our photographer, Tara Gracer, 1111 Group, Ben Baruch and Andrew Kaplan, Mark, Allen, Aaron, and the entire Disco Biscuits organization, Rich Steele, Drew Granicelli, Ben Singer, Rich Steele, Andy Bazzani, and Mike Walsh at the Biscuits Internet Project, Steve Martocci and Joey Friedman, Scott McClintock, Think Tank Dubs, and really everybody who came out to the shows on the West Coast in Colorado and made the first leg of the Why We Dance Tour so memorable. And finally, an extra special thank you to Lisa Gutwillig, Andrea Rivers, and Avery McMahon. Couldn't do it without you guys. Love you. On behalf of John Barber, Crunk Mike, the entire Touchdowns All Day organization. This is Max Dawson saying, see you next time, guys.
Osiris. <laughs> <laughs>